0: You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody, and welcome. So glad you're here with us today at Mosaic Church Online. If this is your first time, Sure hope it's not your last. And of course, welcome today. We're only two weeks away, can you believe it, from our first Sunday where we're going to be able to regather. That's going to be beginning on September 27th. Super excited about that, and I hope you are as well. But let's get into our time of God's Word. Our scripture reading today is going to be from Psalm 40. You can follow along on the screen. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you plan for us. None can compare with you." Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burn offerings and sin offerings you do not require. Then I said, here I am, I've come. It's written about me in this scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. And that's the reading of God's Word. Welcome today to a brand new series. I'm super excited to kick off today. It's called, as you can see, A Prayer For. And we're looking at the subject of hope in the Psalms. And specifically as we go, we're going to be learning how to pray for six things. Sort of starting inward and moving outward. We'll learn how to pray, see how to pray for the self, for our family, for our faith community, for our neighborhood, our city, and finally, Our nation, And along with this, as we go, we're going to be doing a number of prayer projects that are going to connect you to these topics. The first is going to be something super simple. Just a day-by-day devotional for a couple of weeks that are going to help you pray for yourself and for your family. You can check your inbox if you're on our email list for that. The second is a prayer meets art project that's going to be here in our facility. It's going to happen roughly around the same time as our regathering to help us pray for our church, help us pray for our neighborhood. And the final project will be, you should mark your calendars for this, it'll be a prayer walk around the Texas State Capitol building on October 24th. More details on that to come for sure. The Brazilian author, someone named Clarice Le Spectre. She's arguably the greatest writer in the Portuguese language. After she had sold millions of copies of her book, super successful, she then suffered tremendously when she was burned in a fire horrifically. She almost had to have her writing hand amputated. And out of her suffering, she wrote what's considered arguably her greatest book. And in Portuguese, it's called Agua Viva, or in English, it's translated as The Stream of life. And she said something profound in that book. She wrote this. She said, quote, What I say to you is never what I say to you, but something else instead. It captures the thing that escapes me. And that's a beautiful and super fancy way of saying something simple. She's saying that there's something being said through her words that her words alone can't capture. There's something being said through her words that isn't in her words alone. And I think the same thing is true about the Psalms. There is something more profound coming through the Psalms than just the words of the Psalms alone can tell you. What is that? I think it's this. If the Lord's Prayer from the lips of Jesus Christ, tells us what to pray. And the book of Psalms from the Hebrew Scriptures shows us how to pray. The Psalms show us how to capture that thing that escapes us, how to connect our feelings, how to connect our emotions, how to connect our experiences to the person and the heart of God. And I think to learn to do that right now is more important than ever. So today, let's look at that thing. That often escapes us. How we connect ourself to the God who made us. How do we do that? How do we connect ourself to God? Psalm 40 is going to show us today three things. It's going to show us a new sense of self. It's going to show us a new source of struggle. And finally, a new song to sing. It's going to show us a new self, a sense of who we are, a new source of struggle. Why we fail to be who we're supposed to be. And finally, how we can break through. To the new song, but let's begin at number one. Look at this new sense of self. And I'll start by asking you, who are you? Who are you today? What would you say your identity is? And let me ask you, where do you get that from? Now, occasionally far less than I like to or that I used to, but occasionally I still like to play some pickup basketball. And What's amazing about this is when I go, you know, I can still dunk a basketball, as often as I could 10 years ago. It's amazing, I know. Now, some of you will get that in just a minute. But but when I'm playing, when I go in that gym, I often like to look at the sneakers each player is wearing as they come into the gym because each player comes in wearing a pair of sneakers. And what kind of sneakers they wear tells me a little bit about them. For example, if they come in wearing some old school Chuck's, I know what era they're from or what era they like. If they come in wearing some some retro Jordans, I can tell what era they like or what era they're from. Or if they come in wearing some new school LeBron's or Kobe's, I can tell what era they're from, what era they identify with. You can tell the point is up to a point where they're from by what they wear into the gym. And the same thing I want to tell you is true when you come into the conversation about who you are. You come in wearing something. It's a pair of cultural lenses, a pair of cultural glasses that influence how you see yourself. And if, and if you show me your glasses, I'll tell you most likely where you're from. And Psalm 40 today is going to try to help us see where we're from. And hear me, help us be more than that alone. So, who are we then? Where do you get your sense of self? Let me try to take a look at a couple of cultural lenses we tend to wear. First, today, in modern Western culture, modern Western culture, we say no one can actually tell us who we are. We say we have to define ourselves for ourselves. We say stuff like, you gotta do you, you gotta be you. We say stuff like, YOLO. We say, no, inherited cultural construct can possibly contain us. The only moral absolute then we have left is just to be true to ourself. Things like, therefore, things like right, things like wrong, things like good, things like bad, all of those are relative and more specifically, they're all relative to who we say we are, who we want to be today. Tomorrow or next year, it could change. Now, before you hear what I just said through, man, he's like the grouchy, conservative, Christian preacher, person, pastor guy telling me stuff today. Let me just back the truck up for a moment and give you some contrast and context. By contrast, something called traditional cultures are just the opposite, and really for the most part what the United States has been up until roughly 1960 or so. In many ways it reflected, this nation has reflected, a traditional culture approach. Traditional cultures assigned you a role. It told you you were a man, you a woman, a mother, a father, a housewife, a son, a worker, a farmer, a tinker, tailor, soldier, spy as the book said. And you received honor and glory for living up to and out of that assigned role. You lived up through That to that, through the ideal of self sacrifice, no matter how much you hated it. The culture told you who you were, and if you could live that out, you were a success. But today, of course, you know this, you feel this. Success comes through living out something totally opposite. We don't now look out into the world so it can tell us who we are, we look into ourselves to tell us who we are. This is what we call our current. Heroic moral narrative, our hero story. We don't look out today and become a hero by defeating what's out there for the sake of others. No, we become a hero by looking within and overcoming those things for the sake of ourselves. And you can see the conflict between these two cultural lenses in almost every Disney movie made over the last 30 years. Little Mermaid, for example, hey, don't let King Triton tell you who you are. Ariel, no, leave dad at home and become who you are supposed to be. Aladdin, don't let the culture assign you a role. Look within to determine your role. And the greatest example of all these, of course, is Frozen, where we sing, and it's a great song, by the way, we sing Let It Go. What are we letting go of? No right, no wrong, No rules for me. I'm free. I'm leaving behind the good girl I always had to be. That is classic modern identity formation versus traditional formation. And you can still see that playing out today. Yes, even across the pond in British royalty. I literally just read this headline this week from that source of all things right in Current L magazine. Here it is. The headline read, Prince Philip... Thinks Prince Harry has abdicated his responsibilities for a life of self centered celebrity. Article went like this writer said, quote, Prince Philip has struggled greatly with what he sees as his grandson Harry's dereliction of duty, giving up his homeland and everything he cared about for a life of self-centered celebrity in North America. As far as Philip was concerned, Harry and Meghan had everything going for them, a beautiful home, a healthy son, and a unique opportunity to make a global impact with their charity work. For a man whose entire existence has been based on a dedication to doing the right thing, it appeared that his grandson had abdicated his responsibilities for the sake of his marriage to an American divorcee. And there it is. Traditional versus modern right in the tabloid. So which one is it? Which one is better? Let me critique both for just a moment. On one hand, sure, yeah, traditional cultures could be extremely narrow. They could be terribly patriarchal, limiting soul crushing, especially if you could not live up to the heroic moral narrative you just heard Prince Philip give you. Make your entire existence based upon doing the right thing. But on the other hand, modern identity formation is equally, if not more, crushing for three reasons. First of all, it's because it is incoherent. Because what do you do if you look inside and you find competing instincts inside you? What if you look inside and you hear, sacrifice for others. but Then you also hear, put yourself first. What if you hear, be faithful to your spouse. But then you hear, you should indulge your every impulse. What do you do if you hear, don't be a racist. Then you hear, be a racist. If only you can decide for you, you can ever... Actually, never actually be wrong. And if modern identity formation is correct, looking inside and saying be a racist is as equally acceptable and morally good as being an anti-racist. Except, except, we know that can't be true or correct. And so what if your choice to put you first, to love you first was backfiring? What if that was really harming you in the long run? How? Could you ever know either way? Second, modern identity formation is also crushing. Because what if, what if you looked inside, you determined who you wanted to be, but then you couldn't, you can't achieve that. Who are you now? What does that say about you? Who are you then? Finally, third, it's also cheap. It's cheap, and here's what I mean. You know, if you look inside yourself, you can't really bless yourself, define yourself. It doesn't work. You say, well, sure I can. We're going to bless myself. I'm a successful person. Look at me. All right, all right, all right. But what about all of those who the culture says are outcasts, moral failures, can't measure up? How could that person bless themselves? what do we need? What do we need? What can rescue us from the limits of both traditional and modern identity formation? If we can't trust our culture first and we shouldn't trust ourselves first, who can we trust? Psalm 40 shows us who. Look at verse 4. The writer says, Blessed, happy is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, those who turn aside either way to false gods. The writer is saying, trusting in any other voice first to define you besides the one true God, it's ultimately going to trust you. It's going to be a snare to you. But he's saying, ultimately, blessedness, happiness comes by allowing the voice of the one true God to define you. And look now, look now, right away, what this writer discovers once he realizes that God is the one who has the right to define him first. First he realizes, he sees, he grasps that traditional religion won't cut it. He says, God, I can see it. Look at verse six. That sacrifice, offering, you didn't desire, but my ears you've opened, I get it now. Burn offerings, sin offerings. You didn't require. He's saying, God, on one hand, I see, I see. That obedience to the rules alone is never what you were always, ever after. He's saying on one hand, yeah, Elsa, she was right. Just being the good girl because your culture tells you to. It won't save you, can't rescue you. And yet, as we're going to see here, Elsa was missing something. Elsa missed the thing that every person... Any person who truly wants a healthy, unshakable identity needs, which is what David shows us here. The writer in verse 8, he says, verse 8, Now I also, though, I desire to do your will, my God, not my own. Your law, not my law, is within my heart. He realizes that in order to be self actualized, to be who he's supposed to be, to have a full self, he still needed both a transcendent voice and a universal standard to call him out of the decaying internal orbit every human heart is upon unless it's acted upon by an outside force. David realized, the writer realized, he needed both the law of God and the voice of God to define him. That is the uniquely Christian sense of self. Unlike traditional identity formation, there is, hear me, a way to break through what your culture tries to define you as or limits you as. It's the voice of God speaking directly and uniquely to you from outside your culture. And yes, unlike modern identity formation, it shows us there is an unchanging moral standard. It is the will and the law of the God who made you. That's the surprising new sense of self Psalm 40 shows us that your true self is not formed around the voice of your culture, it's not your own voice, but it's around the voice of the one true God. And I want to tell you today you can have and get that. It's number 1. New sense of self, but but if that's true and it is, that's also going to show us immediately, immediately where, how Why we struggle with that? Let's look at that. Number two, there's also a new source of struggle. The psalm points out to us. Let's ask. Well, then why was this writer, the psalmist, struggling? Look at verse 12. He tells you where his struggle is. He says, "For troubles without number surround me, my sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me." He says, "It's my own sin." It's causing me my problems. That's the chief source of my problem. He said, my own sins, they're like like growing faster than my own body hair. Like no matter how much I shave it back or pluck it back or pull it out or cut it, it just keep on sprouting faster than I can can get to. You say, well, that sounds kind of unpleasant. And by the way, sin, I've heard that word before. What's so new about that? Well, on one hand, yeah, you're right. It's not technically new, but on the other hand, I think for a lot of us, for our culture, that word sin is new. And so you should know right now, right now, before I get into this, as a pastor who desires to be sensitive, as someone who, who wants to create a welcoming culture, and as someone who has also seen the devastating effects of a hypercritical, super judgmental religious community, I am all for moving away from dealing in unpleasant judgment And yet, and but the Bible won't let us, even as modern, flexible people, get away from this thing called sin. And and so right now, to keep us from putting anybody else under the microscope, because that's not what this is about, that's not what Psalm 40 is about, let's just put ourselves under the microscope for a bit. And in the spirit of our age, where we love learning about ourselves and being honest, let's just be honest about ourselves for a moment. And to do that, to be honest, we got to honestly define what that struggle is. When I say struggle, I don't mean like you wish you could dunk, but you can't, or you could fly, but you can't, or you could live on the moon or Mars, but you can't. No, no. I mean what Romans 7 says, that I want to do what's right but I can't do it. I want to do the right thing, but I find that many times that I can't do it. That is the moral struggle we all face. And that struggle, whether we want to call it or not, call it this or not, is what the Bible calls a sin struggle. Uh, and so let me just try to define how that looks through the lens of Psalm 40. Put it like this. Whatever we do to create a sense of self outside God is what the Bible calls sin sin. Let me give you three examples of this. First, years ago when I was starting out in campus ministry, there was some other guy who, who came into our group, and our ministry, and he was a super cool, ultra charismatic, California cool guy. Man, everybody uh, liked him at first, and he had come out of this life of, of being extremely sexually promiscuous, but because of his newfound commitment to Christ and the help from the people within our group, he, he soon left that life behind, except that we found out as he, as he went along that he was still a really, big jerk every time he went in the room. He had to dominate the conversation. He had to take everything over. He lorded his authority over everyone. And while people were glad he wasn't living his old life, they weren't too excited about how he was living his new life either. And his main issue, as it turned out, wasn't really about lust. It was really about power it wasn't about sexual expression it was about power expression power over people power over students power was how he got a sense of self and being someone and in the end it actually cost him everything Second, what about our work culture today? My my own, Morgan's own heroic moral narrative, like countless Americans, maybe yours, has been overwork, I believe. If I just do enough, if I just perform well enough, people will like me. Except they won't. It never works. It's a vicious, soul-snapping, exhausting treadmill to try to run on. That's not to say that hard work is not important. It is. Read the parable of the talents. But. When work itself becomes not just a way to grow, not just to become who God's made you to be, develop your gift, bless other people, but when work becomes the way in which you vanquish your existential enemies and you get your approval, that's called idolatry. Trusting in a false God to save you, to save me from the insecurity on the inside of me or you. And that idol, I want to tell you, It's cruel by the way. It makes you sacrifice your your marriage and your health and your friendships and your children and your family. We call it overwork. The Bible calls it idolatry or sin. What about politics? Yeah, politics. If voting for your candidate is not just how you righteously, conscientiously participate as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven first, In a democratic, limited two-party system, but voting is now how you feel good about yourself because you're not like those other people. At that point, now politics has become a kind of a religion. Your candidate is a kind of high priest or false god because, just like in any false religious system, those inside are the good ones, worthy of honor and adulation and those outside... Are the bad ones worthy of shaming and trolling and hate? The Bible would call that idolatry, getting a sense of self and worth outside God. So how do we escape any struggle that we have? Look at this. Thomas Chalmers, a Puritan writer, put it brilliantly. He said, quote, It is seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. At least it's very seldom that this is done. By the instrumentality of reasoning, just by thinking about it, or by the force of mental determination, by willing it. He says, But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed, and one taste may be made to give way to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind. The boy who ceases at length to be a slave to his appetite does so because a more mature taste has brought it into his subordination. The young man, for example, may cease to idolize sensual pleasure, but it's because the idol of wealth has gotten the ascendancy, so the love of money can cast out the love of sloth. However, even the love of money can cease to have mastery over the heart if it's drawn into the world of ideology and politics, and he's now lorded over by a love of power, moral superiority. But there is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. The heart's desire for an ultimate object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is through the expulsive power of a new one. In other words, he's saying, when what you worship changes, that's when you change. When what you worship changes, that's when you change. How can we change that? It's by seeing number three, That we have, we can get, a new song to sing. A new song to sing. And now, oh, now finally we should ask. Where was the psalmist here? Where was the writer of this? When he was writing all of this, when he was feeling the the pain of his loss, of his sin, experiencing the stripping away of his sense of self. Oh, this is my my favorite part of this. Where was he? Come on, you know, say it. He was in the pit. The writer was in the pit. Now, would would you read this out loud with me? These famous verses from Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of this slimy pit out of the mud and mire and he, even though he like you today he was in that pit of sin pit of self, he's saying somehow now verse 3 that he got this he put a new song in my mouth a hymn of praise to our God and I love this because did you know that this phrase new song It's something that appears nine times throughout the Christian scriptures. And each time you read those words, new song, it's connected to something amazing. Some amazing new experience that the writer has had with the God of the Bible. There's some amazing breakthrough or victory that he's experienced that God has done for him or for her. In other words, put it like this, you can sing a new song when you get a new story. You sing a new song when you get a new story. see stories and songs. They're connected. Our culture, you know this, has this story. It wants you to sing that you can save yourself through being who it tells you to be. The human heart has a story it wants you to sing that you can save yourself by being who you want to be. But the writer here says that God gave him a new song to sing, a new story to sing. What was it? Oh, verse 9 shows you the story in his song. Verse 9 says, God, I proclaim, look at this, your saving acts. And this word for proclaim, it isn't just any old word. It's the Hebrew word basar, which when the first Christians went out into the world, into the Roman Empire, and they translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, they gave this word "bassar," this word, which some of you know, euangelion, or it means literally the good news, or more simply put, the gospel. The gospel, which is what? That God saves us. The writer here is singing, he's preaching his new song. He says about your saving acts, about salvation. Oh, which is something he could only glimpse in part here, but it's something that the New Testament centuries later would reveal in full, which is this, that God doesn't just rescue us from the pit. No, this God goes into the pit with you. You can see in part from Joseph, God was with him in his pit. You can see in part from Daniel in his pit, with the psalmist in his pit, in part from Jeremiah, God was with him in his pit. Oh, but one day, fully, Jesus Christ would come into this world as God. God in a body. Enter into the pit of human misery so deeply and so truly as to be shut out from the voice and the presence and the person of God. See what Jesus of Nazareth had had from all eternity. A stable sense of self based on his relationship with and the voice of the Trinity. He lost. He said, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. My God why have you forsaken me? And Jesus went into the pit of suffering on the cross. He lost the voice of God and lost the song of heaven. Why? Here's why. He lost that song to get a new song for you to get a new song for you. Isn't he Isn't he the singing God? Yes, he is. Oh, the prophet Zephaniah says, says that our God is like a singing God, like he, like he sings over us. And that in its own way is what Jesus went into the pit of suffering and sin for. He suffered to get a new song for you today. A new song about a new kind of salvation, a new way to live, not to live out what your culture says or any culture says, which has always changed in any way, nor to to live out of what your own heart tells you, which is always changing anyway, but to live out of the new song, which never changes, which is that God has saved you just because He loves you, that God has come to save you because He loves you. And so what it means now to be a Christian, what it means to pray, is that every time you feel yourself slipping back into some pit or some pit coming on you from something someone else has done, some slimy place of struggle, you start to sing your new song. It's a song that no one can take away. Now, if you've seen the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, you know, it's a movie about a prison. It's run by a cruel warden who meets his match. The character of Andy Dufresne is a man wrongly accused of murdering his wife. And at one point in the movie, while he's trapped in this abusive prison system, apparently for life, for a moment, Andy Dufresne gains access to the sound system of the penitentiary. He locks himself in the room with it. And while the prison warden and all the guards are banging on the doors outside to let them in and to shut the sound off, Andy Dufresne plays an opera from Mozart over the loudspeakers for all the men in the prison to hear and to experience. And Andy's friend in the prison, someone named Red, is played by Morgan Freeman. He narrates these words over that incredible scene. He says this, To this day... I have no idea what those two Italian ladies were singing about. The truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are left best unsaid. I'd like to think that they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words. It makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher, farther than anybody in a grave place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made these walls dissolve away. For the briefest moment, Every last man in Shawshank felt free. For his actions, Andy Dufresne was sentenced to a month in the pit, solitary confinement, the dark. And when he got out, Red asked him, "How did you do it? How did you make it?" This is what Andy said to him. He said, "It's because there's something inside that they can't get to, that they can't touch. It's yours. It's called hope." Now, I want to tell you today that. Is the power of the new song, which you can have. Once God puts that in your mouth, it can never go away. The new song is that Jesus saves because Jesus loves. I hope you'll sing that with me today. Lord, I'm coming to you now on behalf of everyone listening, all those hearing this today. Lord, I'm praying, maybe even for the first time, they begin to sing a new song. Not the old song of their heart, or the old song of the culture, of their family, but a new song to you. That you love them. That you came for them. You're in the pit with them today. You desire to save them. Lord, I'm praying for every person who feels like they're in a pit, in a tough situation job, marriage, pandemic, difficulty, discrimination, all these things. Well, they're in a pit. They need you. We need you. Our nation needs you. Would you come, Lord, and meet us here? We commit to singing this new song. Jesus, that you're safe, not because we deserve it, but because of who you are. We love you today. Lord, I'm praying for that power to break every person through, hearing this and now singing this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.